Hello everyone, today's guest is quite special. I was at a startup event in Waterloo at a semi-finals pitch competition last week. One pitch, however, really caught me off guard. It was so interesting that I decided to meet with the founder after. His name is Alex Dalton. Alex is the type of guy who is not afraid to think big and find solutions to all the possible problems that may come along the way of starting a startup. He also is the founder of Daltonomous Inc, which we will dive into in this episode. On this episode, we talk about startups, about the specific problem Alex is trying to solve, and many things that can help early entrepreneurs or founders. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Human Experience. The following conversation is with Alex Dalton. What is self-love? Oh boy, right out of the gate. What is self-love? Wow, that's an interesting question. And I, I think it's going to vary for a lot of different people. I think self-love is knowing who you are and having directions of where you want to be. Um, it doesn't mean you planned everything out in your life, but it means you know what is important to you in life, uh, whether that's your family, your friends, your career, your hobbies, and just recognizing and being comfortable in how you're living your life. I think there's a lot of uh, competitive natures out there. There are people who are always vying for a top spot, again, whether that's in a career or some other relationship. And I think people lose sight of what it means to be here and now in the present. And self-love is a core component of that. And yeah, that was a great question to start off. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I think like um, even just being competitive with yourself, like just bringing that up, I think that's massive um, in, in my view, because a lot of the time people think self-love is like, okay, like I'm going to get, it's okay for me to eat Cheetos and just do nothing all day. And I just don't think that that's the case. I think that self-love is also taking a sense of responsibility for yourself and sort of being, um, I, I always say self-love is discipline uh, for me. That's, that's the sort of way I view it. Um, but I, I like your take as well. Like you to touch a bit more on like, what do you mean by being competitive with yourself um, in a sense of for self-love, like the defining self-love, like what, what do you mean by that? For sure. So as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of competitive nature here, right? You're yeah. trying to build a business, you're trying to make it successful, you know, you might be hiring people and changing some other people's lives. So there's a lot of responsibility there. There's a lot of pressure being an entrepreneur. And so part of that competitiveness is that you're working very hard. And I think that's the trope for entrepreneurship. That, oh, just work hard and you'll be successful. But that's not always the case, right? Lots yeah. of people work hard and they don't succeed. And you get burnout and you get people who maybe dip into something like depression, for example. Mm -hmm. I think self-love is understanding that, yeah, it's okay to be competitive. It's okay to have a very disciplined life, but understanding that you need to be comfortable in what you're doing, that if you're not comfortable in where you are today, it's going to be very difficult to push yourself in the future as an entrepreneur, in my opinion. 
stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think so. I mean, it's such an uncertain place, right? I think that like uncertainty, well, entrepreneurs have to thrive in, in uncertainty, especially with what you're doing, right? I mean, like even just a startup in that space, in the electric vehicle space, like there's there's a lot of uncertainty. Like, yeah, you have a plan, but you also know that as an entrepreneur in business, like you're expected to hit bumps that you would never expect um, to hit. And so I guess it's really important. Would you agree? It's like really important to have a good relationship with yourself when you're going into this sort of, I like calling it like when you go to this battle of, uh, of entrepreneurship, of trying to make your idea come to life. Uh, like, I, I think you have to have a really good relationship with yourself um, because uh, amidst all the chaos of starting a business and, and going through all the ups and downs, um, you really are going to have to rely on yourself and rely, that, and rely on yourself making the best decision possible in the moment. That's a good insight. I think there's a couple of components to that. Being in a good spot with yourself, a good relationship with yourself, and also being in a good spot in relationship with others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as an entrepreneur, sometimes it can feel like you're on a solo journey, right? Even if you have a team with you, that there's a lot of pressure, like I mentioned, responsibilities of building a business and maybe employing people, for example, in their livelihood. Uh, but as you mentioned, right, there's a lot of things you need to do as an entrepreneur. And if you're not in a good headspace, if you're not comfortable in a good relationship with yourself, how are you going to maintain those relationships with your employees, your suppliers, your customers, for example? And what about all the people who are supporting you along the way, whether you recognize it or not, you know, your parents, your siblings, your significant other, your friends, they're all going to get dragged in to your entrepreneurial journey, whether exactly. you think about it or not, right? Exactly. And so and so there's this whole surround of people um, that if you're not treating them right, you're going to lose their relationships, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And that could send you into a spiral. So I think it's a building block, right? Yeah. Be comfortable with yourself, have a great relationship, be in a good headspace, understand where you're trying to go and why you're trying to go there. And then recognize all the supports around you. And you're going to have a way better journey. I agree. I think that's really well put. Um, yeah, not much for me to say on that. I think you really, you really nailed that one. Um, I, I like, yeah, I, I think that because everybody else is going on this journey with you, it's not necessarily yourself. And I, and I completely agree. I mean, it can get really lonely when you start a business. And even if you have a team, it's those long hours of really brainstorming and trying to figure out a solution. And sometimes even your family and your friends are like sort of, hey, man, like this idea doesn't seem like it's working. You should probably like move on to something. And you're always really fixed, right? Because they don't see what you see in your head right? They just see you trying to make something happen. And it's almost like far-fetched to them. But in reality, it's like, no, man, like, this is pretty big. Like, I think this could really do well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's a great take. But I want to learn a little bit more about you. Um, and so tell me, because I, so how old are you? Because I, I don't even know this. <laughs> yeah, I just turned 30 this year. Okay, cool. 30. Wow, you know, what I mean? you look so much younger than 30. That's all. That's a compliment. That's a compliment. <laughs> good skincare routine, right? Good skincare, exactly. exactly. That's the key. That's the key to looking young is a good skincare routine. Um, and so, so for you, what, what was, I mean, did you ever see yourself starting a startup when you were in university? Was that something that you wanted to do? Or was that sort of something that you felt after graduating? You're like, hey, man, I, I think this is something I want to do. Sure. And if I may, I'll take it a little bit further back than university. So I've always had some sort of entrepreneurial spirit. 
Um, I think startups and, and technology that typically comes later, but as a kid, you know, I was one of those kids who mowed other people's lawns to get some money, right? Um, when I started in university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I actually started at the University of Waterloo in medicinal chemistry because I was like, I don't know, I'll, I'll go and make drugs for people and change the world that way. And boy, that was not where I wanted to go, right? I, I really, I love, I love chemistry. I love um, all the cool things it can do, but I found some of the material very challenging. And so I opted to switch to legal studies because I'd always had more of a passion towards the law and, and um, specifically stuff as boring as contracts always appealed to me. And I was like, okay, I, wow. maybe I have a lawyer brain. And uh, so I had made a huge switch from the faculty of science to the arts faculty and started legal studies. And while I was going through university, I also became a professional DJ. So, oh, wow. Right. So isn't that weird? <laughs> that's, like that's lawyer by day, lawyer by day, DJ by night. Like that's right. Yeah. That's right. And so being a professional DJ, I was the president of the DJ club in university and did gigs throughout my entire uh, tenure at the university. And that helped pay the bills, right? Wow. And it, it allowed me to enjoy life a little bit, get some money. Can you make um, a good amount like doing DJing? Like, yeah, like yes. on average, how much would you make? Like, I, It depends on the timing, but I would usually charge around $75 an hour. Okay. okay. So, so it depends on, you know, you might do a four to six hour gig Friday, okay. Saturday, you might do a few uh, shorter ones in the weekdays. I also did weddings, a couple of those, and those are very lucrative. Okay. And also had some recurring gigs, um, DJed at an art gallery to like, you know, provide the ambient yeah. mu music for them, right? And, wow. and so it, it was cool, right? It was really fun. And it allowed me to continue with my studies um, without having to grind myself with a part-time job, like a regular part-time job, because I could yeah. work evenings and, and weekends and not affect my studies, right? Exactly. So that was really fun. And I thought after university that I would go to law school. And my friends were a year ahead of me because of that switch. And I watched them go to law school and get really stressed out. Like they were working harder than I've ever seen people work just trying to pass their courses in law school. And I, I thought to myself, is this really what I want to do? And at the same time, I was in my last year of university, I started joining some of the student clubs there. I led an engineering team. We did Shell Eco Marathon, where we designed and built a very fuel efficient car. It got about 3000 miles per gallon um, as an equivalent electric car. And it was a little carbon fiber tube of a car. It was really fun. I learned so many skills and I thought, this is amazing. This engineering is fantastic. We're solving really big problems. There's lots of uh, companies working with us to help provide solutions. And I thought, this is, this is fantastic. And I, I mean, I'm a car guy, right? Yeah, That's why yeah. I'm in the transportation industry. And, and so this piqued my interest. And I started uh, in my last year of university, taking a few of the business entrepreneurship and technology courses at the okay. University of Waterloo. So I did like the fundamentals of entrepreneurship and management. And then it's like, this is it, business, business mm -hmm. is it. And I, I had a lucky conversation with um, my girlfriend's great uncle. My girlfriend is now my wife. Her great uncle 
was both a lawyer and a very successful business businessman. And he gave me a good piece of advice. He said, if you're wanting to be a lawyer, think of the world like a giant whiteboard or, or chalkboard, right? He's like, if you're a lawyer, you're going to put a dot on that chalkboard and you're going to know everything about that dot a mile deep. If you're an entrepreneur, you're going to fill up that entire chalkboard with information, but you're only going to know an inch deep. And what he was saying is that if you're a lawyer, you're going to be very specialized. You're going to have a lot of very specific knowledge. And if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to have a lot of broad knowledge that doesn't go very deep because you rely on other people's expertise. And that hit me because I was like, that's what I do. I, I love learning about a lot of different things. Yeah. I love I love just uh, expanding my mind. And I'm like, this has to be it. So I graduated in 2016 um, with the legal studies and management studies um, BA. Okay. And I immediately started my own corporation. <laughs> so um, it, it's an interesting um, story because I was fortunate that at the same time, um, I worked for a company a startup, a fintech startup here in Waterloo that was just getting off the ground. It was venture backed and I was working with some really phenomenal people, but in my mind, I really just wanted to start my own thing. I had this pull. I was like, I can't work for someone else, even if it's a startup. Mm -hmm. So it was fortuitous timing where that startup only lasted nine months before they ran out of funding. And okay. the idea, um, kind of just halted because the competitors were huge banks and fintech, right? Competing okay. against it was very, very yeah. difficult. So I started my company, Daltonomous, which is my last name, Dalton, mixed with autonomous, right? Yeah. Because I really wanted to work with autonomous vehicles. Way back in 2016, they were just coming out. There was a lot of hype around them. And I was looking at how autonomous vehicles function in inclement weather, and that's really important in Canada because we get lots of so snow many storms. Yeah, right? it's just exactly. like terrible. <laughs> and if you think about it, you've ever seen someone driving in the winter and their car is covered in snow and they just, just like wipe away a little bit on the windshield and then they drive and you're like, oh my God, that's so dangerous. Yeah. Now think of a, an autonomous vehicle <laughs> with an array of sensors, cameras on the top, the front, the back, the sides. Do you think people are going to wipe the snow off those or clean them off if they're muddy? Some, but a lot of people are lazy, right? And so yeah. are these cameras going to function well? Are the LiDAR sensors going to function well? Who knows? And so I was looking at auxiliary technology, basically vehicle to infrastructure communication, where okay. we made smart roads. So we were looking at low power technology that you could embed in the road surface. And when a car drove over that, it would say, okay, car, you are exactly here on the road. So it didn't even need a camera. And it was meant as an auxiliary system that works together as an array. I still believe that autonomous vehicles will need some sort of smart infrastructure. Okay. But I learned very quickly the difference between a business and invention. Because an invention is, you know, you're just building this tech and you're hoping someone will buy it. And in my case, and maybe you can guess, who would be my customer for vehicle to infrastructure communication or specifically roadbed communication? Who do you think the customer would be? I would say businesses, right? Like car businesses would be my, would be my guess. Close. 
it's actually the government because the government owns the road, right? Municipalities, uh, yeah. right? Okay, Provincial. Okay, okay. And so when I started talking to them, they said, a ton of what? Driverless <laughs> cars? We are just trying to make sure our, our roads are paved. We're not interested in putting more technology in yeah. them for stuff coming down maybe in 10, 20 years. And so immediately I realized, okay, cool. I can spend all my time building this tech technology. You have no a long runway. Run. Yeah, ex yeah, exactly. You have a long runway, right? Ex yeah. That's, that's, you know what? The best advice I got, I was working with Continental. So Continental is a huge company. They don't just make tires. They also build a lot of the circuit boards for autonomous vehicles and, and regular vehicles as well. And I was speaking to one of their technology development managers and he said, you must have a long breath. And I'm like, what do you mean? Infrastructure takes a long time. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those realizations like not gonna happen like a it, year. You're more looking down like a 10 year road, 10, 15 year it, road. Exactly. So to, to summarize this story or to finish it up, I realized I was missing something. I, I hadn't clicked the difference between business and invention as much. And so I went back to the University of Waterloo to study in their Master's of Business Entrepreneurship and Technology. So I did the part-time program while I worked at the university, okay. which was great because they paid the tuition. And oh, that, okay, that, cool. that is, that is, I think, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur and you're paying 40K for your education, I, I don't know if you did it right. I think, <laughs> I think you need to have the free education. Yeah, um, exactly. So that was a three-year program. I just finished um, in, in June of this year. So oh, okay, just, cool. just, just graduated with that master's and that over the course of that three years, I tried so many different things. I think that's important skill as an entrepreneur is to uh, fail fast, work fast, experiment, try different things, different industries. And you know what? I came back to cars and electric vehicles. And so that's where it brings me back today with what we're working on in the EV space. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I love that. I love that whole journey from like legal studies. So what I'm most, what I'm really fascinated by is uh, your major was in legal studies and business. Um, but you also then went into a domain, which was very technical. Um, and so like, how was that? Like, how was that? Because you're sort of diving into the deep end um, and you're dealing with the technology that you didn't really, um, I guess, study or, or really prepare for. So how did you, like, I, I love it. Cause I think that even just like, cause I, I started this um, small tutoring startup when I was in high school and like, I'm still working on it now, but it's like sort of um, becoming a bit automated. And so what nice. we did was like, I didn't know a lot about dealing with code and, and, I guess, even just business in general, like negotiating and stuff. And I guess like the really cool thing with entrepreneurship is that when you just start something, you automatically, your brain's like a sponge because you're learning so much in like different domains. Like I didn't know how to send a wire transfer. Like I, like, I didn't know how any, I didn't even know what a wire transfer was. Like I understood it from like TV shows of like, like illegal things going on. I just never knew like how it actually worked. Right. And so, um, so for you, like going into like, autonomous vehicles how does that how do you start because it's so technical from the beginning right like do you do you go and find a technical co-founder like how does that or are you then gonna go to school and just um and just learn a lot about technology like how does that journey begin for you yeah that's a great question i think for me specifically i've always had a little bit more of a technical brain so 
my options before going into undergrad for medicinal chemistry were going into um, like Carleton for mechanical engineering or um, was looking at some other universities in Ontario for engineering specifically. And, and I chose a different path. And, and ultimately that engineering brain is still there, which, you know, is test, build, understand, revise, you know, the, the, the whole circular process of, of building. And that to me is always interesting. But when you look at the complex technologies today, uh, as an entrepreneur, it's easy to get into a trap of wanting to know every little detail. <laughs> yeah. And that is impossible today. I mean, if you wanted to, to just break down the understanding of what's in a smartphone today and learn all the technologies that are in your iPhone or in your Android, it would take you forever because there are so many years and so many companies putting in billions of dollars building that technology that it's effectively magic. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and so yeah. a lot of industries are, are like that and they're very complex. And so you have to pick and choose what you need to know now. You know, some people call it just in time learning where they okay. pick up the skills as they need them. That's something I subscribe to. I think, you know, if you're looking at how to do website development, for example, do you pick the front end? Do you pick the back end? Do you pick both? Or what do you need today, right? And and so early in my entrepreneurship, I, I thought, okay, a website is everything you need. As soon as you get that online presence, everyone's going to find you. And that's definitely not the case. Mm -hmm. But I spent I spent lots of hours learning website development and, okay. and just trying to get something out there. Lots of tutorials on YouTube. And then in terms of the actual technology, lots of reading, right? We were looking at, uh, effectively RFID, so radio field identification. And that is a very complex topic, but it's also been one that's been covered for a very long time. I mean, I think it was invented, I, I want to say like RFID tags were, were made in like the 1970s or okay. so. Like it's a very mature technology. And because of that, there's lots of information. There's lots of people who studied it. And I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And when, when I get to a point where I'm in blue ocean, for example, where no one's doing this before, then I start to say, okay, what holes do I need to fill? What talent do I need? Who do I need to talk to? And I think that's a very, very important skill as an entrepreneur. There are people who are extremely technical, who can go on GitHub and find whatever they need yeah. and they can build something. But they're, they're hard pressed to get that out into the marketplace or talk to people, right? It's just not their skill set. Yeah, exactly. My skill set is the, is, is the exact opposite of that. I call myself a technology translator because I can take the technical jargon and bring it to an investor or a layperson or a potential customer and break it down very simply for them mm -hmm. so that they can understand how this could be beneficial for them. And it's that, that I, I want to say, quote unquote, client facing personality that I have that has allowed me to be fairly successful in what I've been, been doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that's so important, man, because like a lot of the times that there's like a technical founder, um, by the way, I'm pro technical founders. Like I, I like, I love working with them. They're, they're super fun. Yes. They're super talented, but I yes. think that sometimes they do lack that ability to, I, I guess, really take 
off the technical hat and put on like the people's hat and actually talk and explain what the idea is without having the technical jargon. Like and I, this happens all the time, right? Like even sometimes people, people just try to impress with their idea. Like sometimes like if someone, especially now, like all these keywords, like AI, blockchain, machine learning, like, you mm-hmm. know, like the token, mm-hmm. like it's just, you hear that all the time. And you're like, dude, just cut to this shit. Like, what is your idea? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to try and like understand what you like, just, and I think that's such an important um, important skill to have. And what I find really cool is that for you, like even just, okay, I need to build a website. Okay, cool. What do I need to learn now? And then you just learn web development to build it. And I think that's just a really important skill to have. And and not even just web development, but the idea that, that that you just trust yourself that, hey, look, whatever I go into, let's say there's something in machine learning, oh shit, like I need to know this. You're like, okay, I'll just learn it then. When it comes to it, I'll learn it. And I, what, would you, what did you call it? You said just in, what was it? Just in learning? Yeah, just in time learning. Just and it comes, from, it comes from, I guess, Toyota's just in time inventory, Okay. right? Where they, in their factories, when they're building their cars, instead of having all the parts on hand for every single car sitting in a giant warehouse and they've got the cash tied up in that inventory, they'll they'll tweak their supply chain so that the inventory they need to build the next car arrives just in time on the assembly line. Okay. And so similarly with learning, you know, you can cram your brain full and we, you know, anyone who's gone to university or college understands that you're cramming for the next quiz, just trying to pack your brain full of information and you lose it right after that test yeah. because you're, you're just, you're just putting in short-term memory versus as soon as you learn something. And I mean, really learn. So you, you internalize the information and you apply it. That's going to stay with you for a long time. And so if you're wanting to build a website, for example, and you learn uh, front-end web design, um, CSS, something like that, and you immediately put it into your website and, and write your code, you're going to know that a lot longer, right? It's going to be much more efficient learning. And I think, yeah, and, and I think what's that is that like as an entrepreneur, you're diving into different domains all the time, right? Like for you, you're, you could be like right now you're in the EV space, but may, maybe um, like inside the EV space, you're going to be going more into um, deep learning, like maybe for self-driving, like you, there's so many different avenues. And I really like the practical approach of, okay, so when the time comes, I'll just learn it instead of you spending hours now just trying to learn everything in the domain and then only realizing that you're only going to use like two percent of what you learned right because all that wasted time i i guess i guess wasted time because that could have been used better um and so i yeah like i i really like that and what i'm really fascinated though is so you talked about working with government what's your biggest concern with that because i i guess my concern would be that governments just in general are so slow right like they just it's just like real for an entrepreneur. There's just it's just like the worst when you're working for a government because you're, you're always like you're ambitious, you're visionary, you want to work really hard, want to work really fast, and they're always like taking years to do like the most smallest thing. So how do you how do you see yourself getting past that um, hurdle? But I, I guess that's that's my part two to a part one question. First, tell me what are you trying to build or what have you built? Just like what what is your what is your um, your startup? Sure. Yeah, great question. So we're under the moniker right now of EV123. Um, and and we had started as an, a residential EV charger installation company. That's what we were looking at. We were trying to, the overall ethos is how do we get 
people, um, how, how do we get EV chargers into people's homes and into their hands so that EV adoption can move forward? Because at the moment, we hear a lot in the news and a lot of anecdotal evidence of, I'm not going to buy an EV because I can't charge it. What happens if my battery runs out when I'm on the freeway or something, yeah. right? Or yeah. I'm in, what happens if I'm in the middle of the forest and I can't charge my car? And you're like, oh my God. <laughs> and, and so um, trying to solve that problem is what we were first looking at. And we spent a lot of time, we talked to a lot of people trying to understand, is buying an EV charger, a residential one, a problem? Is it difficult? What are the challenges? And what we realized quickly is that the demographic today that owns an EV is a little bit more affluent. They might own their own house or they have access to a private garage, for example, or a private property where they can easily install an EV charger. There's a few people in apartments and condos that own EVs, but ultimately, you know, it's becoming easier and easier every day to install an EV charger into an apartment or condo. And while the consumer today does not realize the benefits between having a 240 volt level two charger that's running off 15 amps versus a 240 volt running off 50 amps, there's a significant difference in charging time. The consumer doesn't care because the convenience factor of being able to plug in their car overnight and have a full tank of fuel is way more convenient than having it done, for example, in three hours versus six hours. Like the difference while they're sleeping doesn't matter. Yeah. And so we, we really realized that this was not a big problem. And as we started to get more and more into the EV space, we realized that there's going to be a race to the bottom for this type of technology. It's not really a space we want to get into. And so we, we started looking for other problems because really, again, we wanted to increase the adoption of EVs. So reducing any barrier in this industry would be beneficial to our end goal. And we heard a lot about the problem with public DC fast chargers. So a DC fast charger is one that can charge a car using direct current, DC current, instead of alternating current that's in your home. And it can charge your car in like 15 minutes, right? This is great. This is what everyone has been yelling for so that they can charge their car in a reasonable amount of time. But the problem is one in four of these public DC fast chargers does not function properly. And that's a huge problem for a variety of reasons. First of all, if you go to uh, a station where there's four EV chargers and you pick one, there's a good chance it won't work. And really? that's really inconvenient. Yeah. I mean, one in four of those won't be working. And oh, so, shit. right. Exactly. That's terrible. Right? Yeah. The, the, the compounding factor is the issue can be anything. It could be a broken screen. It could be a snipped cord. It could be broken pins in the connector that goes into your car. Um, it could be that the data service is turned off. It could be that the payment gateway is not functioning. It could be that the, the utilities, uh, electricity flow is not functioning for some reason. There's a lot of issues. It could be a bee's nest inside and you might not know. And, and, and so how do you navigate that? What does that look like? How do you, how do you solve that problem? And this is where we're diving in today. At the moment, 
there is a, uh, a piece of legislation coming from the Department of Transportation in the U.S. that says these DC fast chargers need to be functioning 97% of the time. So that's a huge discrepancy right now. And the, the service providers, the, the people that own the chargers, they, on their back end, they say, no, everything's functioning fine. Everything is looking 100% up on our, on our dashboards. So why is there a huge discrepancy between what the public is seeing and what's actually, um, and, and what they're seeing on the back end? And so that's where EV123 comes in. We're doing site auditing services for electric vehicle chargers. So what does that mean? So there, there's platforms out there like Plug PlugShare today, where you have crowdsourcing, where people will go to a charger and if it's not working, they'll open PlugShare on their app and they'll be like, this charger's not working. And maybe they'll take a picture and then eventually the service provider will see that it's not working from complaints and maybe they'll go out and fix it, but it could take days, weeks, months. There's really no, no rhyme or reason to that. Okay. Exactly, right? So what we're doing is providing an audit service. An audit is when a third party looks at you know the data data available. Usually, it's done in financial services, um, but looking at the data data available and evaluating in some way and coming up to some third party conclusion. Okay. So the goal of this auditing is to ensure that those service providers are meeting that ninety seven percent uptime compliance or are able to help them get there. And then we also ensure that, well, their chargers are functioning, right? Because the faster a charger can be identified as not working, the faster it can be repaired and the faster the service provider can make money, right? Mm -hmm. If that charger's down, they can't make money. And also finally, we're solving the reputation impacts, right? So if you as an EV driver go to a service provider A and their chargers are always down, are you ever going to go back to their chargers? No, no you're yeah. going to go to service provider B. And so immediately that reputation is so, so important. And when we've talked to service providers, they say, yes, customer experience is the number one thing we care about. Is it? So why are your chargers down, right? <laughs> and so yeah. we're, we're helping them to identify and solve those problems in a third-party way that their customers can trust that if they get data from EV123 that says, hey, these chargers are upgrading and they can go there knowing they'll get a charge, right? Okay. And, and, and so together that really helps the, the reliability standpoint from understanding what the real world situation is with the chargers. Okay, cool. So let's, so let's give a use case for me. So I go to um, a charging place. I got my car, my electric vehicle car, I go there and I... I need to charge it and for this charger now isn't working that, that I want. I want it to work, but it's just not working. So, so do you want me to take a photo of it not working? And then, so, so what's the process? Like, what is your ideal use case in that scenario? Right. So you actually, you hate it uh, pretty good there. What we're using and what makes us different than any of the competition is we are using crowdsourced uh, information. So instead of having technicians all driving all the day going to thousands of sites we're still using the public similar to PlugShare but unlike PlugShare we're getting the data that we that the service providers need so what does that mean it's not opinionated data it's carefully curated and audited data yeah. that comes from um, these these EV drivers and we incentivize them going to the stations we need through gamification so either 
by providing them points or charging credits in a way that they can you know, effectively earn while they're, they're working with us. And that's a huge differentiator because it, it means that we can control where we send people and when we send people. And that allows us to, you know, find a charger that hasn't been checked in five days versus, you know, plug share. Maybe there's a charger that hasn't been used in months. And yeah. it, because it said, someone said it was down one day, but it's actually actually working fine right yeah and okay. so we're making sure that every charger is connected so that gamification piece is really critical then yeah the the use case is that you if you're on our platform would take a picture there's a couple of questions you need to answer and it's time stamped and verified so that our algorithm can verify that yes this person is actually there taking pictures okay. this is actually happening it's not like you took a picture on a Wednesday and you send it in on a Friday, for example, that, that won't fly. You have yeah. to be there and send it in. And then we provide that data right back to the service providers so they can compare against their data and say, oh boy, ours says it's functioning hundred percent, but actually the cable is cut. Well, that's not good. So how can we fix that problem? Right. And that's, that's what we're okay. Yes. Yeah, so you're giving these, these service providers, like the, the actual information they need to, to like, a. Uh to fix the problem right away and sort of have like this sort of ambiguity of like, okay, like someone said they didn't like this, but like, how the hell do we even fix that? Like, is that even accurate? So, so for me, um, do I like, is it, is it possible for me? Like, let's say I have to go charge, uh, my car now. So am I able to check your platform and see which ones are working and then just go to those? Like, is that also, is that, is that like a, yeah. Feature? So, so it, it's a feature by, being uh, just a de facto piece of information from a platform. So for example, if there's two chargers, A and B, and you always go to charger A, right? On the platform, it'll show, you know, the last time it was checked or that it's working, for example, but charger B hasn't been checked in a while. It's gray. I don't know if it works. You don't know if it works. But today, you if you go to that charger, you're going to get a free uh, charge. On that's it, the gamification right? part of it. Exactly. I see. Exactly. And now, now that expires, right? Someone else could go get that charger oh, before okay. you did, right? Um, and so you're taking a risk that that charger might not work, but there's incentivization for it. And the yeah. lovely thing is, you know, we're not sending you a thousand kilometers away from your destination, right? Yeah. We're hoping that you maybe drive like, you know, an extra 10 kilometers, for example, to the next station and check it. And the beauty is, you know, you're not wasting gas, quote unquote, right? Like yeah. electricity is so much cheaper. And if you today in a gasoline car could have an offer of go to this gas station and check to see if the gas pump works. And if it does, we'll fill your whole tank. You'd be like, yes, please. Yeah, I would do that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I would like, dude, are you kidding? Like I, I would, I literally filled gas yesterday. If someone told me that I was like driven an extra 10 minutes just to get free gas, <laughs> especially with these I would prices. Drive, I would drive like half an hour. I would have driven to Waterloo. Like right now I'm in Toronto. <laughs> <just for> that. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. And so that gamification, gamification piece uh, is really vital and important. And it's one of our competitive advantages for sure. Yeah. I think that's a massive advantage, man. I think that's like the, in my opinion, just from hearing that, like, I think that's the key, like that's a massive incentive is like, Hey, if you go and check if this is working, and I think it's really cool. Cause now like it's a win for them and it's a win for you because now the service provider is also going to be like, Hey, like, uh, we always get the perfect information um, from this platform all the time because people are constantly checking to see what works, what doesn't work. And then we always get like, the information right away and we can fix it. So it's like a win-win for everybody. I think that's like really rarely do you see those situations, but this is really, that's really cool, man. Cause I, I think that I'm really, I, I like the creativity of the gamification part for me. I think that, cause you, you make it fun for the, 
um, for the actual user. And then for you, you're also retaining a lot of important information you can give back to service providers. So I think that's, that's, uh, that, that, that's really cool. Yeah. Okay. And, and yeah. the, the one critical differentiator with say PlugShare, which is a massive database, they're doing great things, but the problem is it's an opinionated data that, for example, I could go on that platform today. I could drive to a station. Maybe it's my competitor's station. And I say, and then, yeah. you know what? This isn't working. And I just, I just leave a review and a quick check mark that says, nope, not working. And it gets flagged in their system. And then someone has to go check it from the competitor. And then they have to say, no, it's working. It's fine, right? Or they lose revenue for the day. And that's that's no bueno. That's yeah. not a, that's not good. That, right? that, that's terrible. Yeah, exactly. And you're so what you're doing is like sort of um, auditing it. You're making sure that no, like this is an actual problem. You're not just making this shit up, basically. It's exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's a massive difference. That's a, so. Have you have you launched yet? Like, have, is this already there, or is this sort so, of at the idea stage? So um, we are we're in between idea and launch. So what we're doing is validating these pieces. Okay. Right at the moment, we are about to launch a an Ontario-wide study for the reliability of public DC fast chargers. So we partnered with um, a company called Cool the Earth in California, who just released a study with the University of California, Berkeley, that they came up with a data point that said one in four chargers is not functioning properly. It was actually 72% are functioning. So it's a little bit, a little bit more than one in four, yeah. um, but one in four is a good number to, to share. And so we partnered with them to replicate their study here in Canada because they want to know, is there a different dynamic? What does this reliability look like? We're launching that study uh in the third week of July here. So okay. very, very soon. And what that allows us to do is, first of all, really understand what the landscape looks like here in Canada firsthand uh, in Ontario and, and maybe expand to Canada later. And then it also allows us to start collecting that valuable data, both from the reliability standpoint, but also testing our gamification platform. So this is like very closed alpha testing. And we're hoping that if everything goes well, that we'll publish this study um, sometime around the end of August and then okay. launch uh, September. Okay. Okay, cool. I see. Yes. So that's, that's interesting. Cause I, I work at this, uh, are you looking for funding? Like what, what's your funding cycle? If you have an idea of like how much, cause I know that the 5k pitches, like I understand that the 5k would go towards your actual um, startup. And the reason why I'm asking this is because I'm an associate at this uh, student-led VC firm called Front Row Ventures. And so I'm a portfolio associate. And so they're always looking for different startups, um, student students, uh, student founders. Um, so you fit that category because uh, you just told me that you graduated in June, which congrats, by the way. Um, and so and so you should you should check it out because they also like they invest in, in student founders and things like that. So let me just, I'll just type it in here. Just it's Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm actually familiar with Front Row um, okay, cool. because of how long I've been in the entrepreneur uh, ecosystem here at, at the University of Waterloo. I've had the chance to speak to a couple of them while I was working on some other uh, class-led stuff. And they reached out, they're like, I was doing vertical farming at the time and understanding energy management for vertical farms. That's a whole different other story. But <laughs> what a domain. They reached out and said, wow. DJ, DJ yeah, know, by, right? by night, lawyer, like vertical farming. like <laughs> Right, exactly. Hey, vertical farms, we can have a whole different conversation because yeah. they're great, but they're also 
very flawed. And yeah. so anyway, reworking on them, um, the energy management and someone from front row reached out. I felt so bad because I'm like, I, I don't know if there's actually a venture here, but they were so eager to talk. And so, you know, if they were always on my radar as one of these first groups to be able to reach out to young companies to provide them with that, that first boost that they might need, which I think yeah. is incredibly powerful. Right. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that you're, you're on that. And we'll definitely talk off air about that, but yeah, there's yeah, yeah. lots of other, there's lots of other funding. So um, we had one in January, the university of new Brunswick apex competition. We won first place um, in the graduate track there, which was really cool. And then now we're, we're rolling into concept at the university of Waterloo for another yeah. 5k. So those are great ways for young entrepreneurs to, to uh, get some early, early stage funding, non-dilutive, non-equity funding, which I think is so important, right? Honestly. If you're, going, if you're going to be building a company, especially as a student where you have very few resources, even 5K, even $1,000 can get can go a company way. off the ground. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then the nice thing about working in the electric vehicle space is that it's booming right now. And I'll, there's a lot of problems in the space and there's a lot of funding. And so even from the government of Ontario, they're releasing yeah. a lot of funding. So we're, we're in talks with getting some grant money from the government of Ontario and then hopefully, hopefully working with some other partners and, and getting more money. I mean, our goal would be to raise around 500 K this year. So yeah. um, fingers crossed. No, for sure. Uh, dude, uh, I think you make up a great point is like, um, well, one, like the EV space is really booming, like you said. And, and so there's a lot of, plus it's good for the environment. So a lot of governments now actually want to help um, these, these startups and really incentivize them, incentivize founders to just really go for these ideas. And so there's definitely different grants available, but even just as a startup founder, especially coming out of university or while you're in university, I think they should really take advantage of all of the, um, the resources there, like these little pitch competitions, you win 500 bucks or like a thousand, five thousand $5,000. Like the, if you, you don't really in it, it's best. Cause it's just non-dilutive, right? Like you can still keep your equity in the company. And now you have all this money to help really just propel your startup um, and it's just like literally free of cost. And all you have to do is just really show sure. people that your idea is one worth working on. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I would say there is one more uh, very important resource that you have while you're in university. And that's being surrounded with young, ambitious people um, in, in either the same or different backgrounds as you, right? So university is the place where you can find lots of co-founders, lots of people to work with you, work for you. You can find researchers to, to uh, leverage their research into your business and commercialize it. There's so, so, so much you can do with the people resource in university that as soon as you graduate and you go into the quote unquote real world it becomes very difficult. It becomes very difficult to find a co-founder, for example, mm -hmm. because you know, where, where do you search for them, yeah. right? Do How you do put you it find on, one? Yeah, exactly. Like LinkedIn be like, yeah. hi, I'm looking, looking for, for a co-founder. Co <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? No, and, and that becomes, it feels sketchy, right? But when you're in university, you're you're pulling all-nighters it's cool you know yeah you can, exactly uh, yeah you've got so many resources especially at the university of waterloo that yeah, exactly. i encourage any 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 young aspiring founder 
to go out, join some clubs uh, that they're interested in, join some societies and meet more people because you never know who you're going to meet and where that can take you in an entrepreneurial journey. Exactly. I think like even just uh, if you're if you're looking for a co-founder, like technical co-founder, just walk into the computer science department. Like you just and just meet students and be like, hey, like, how are you like network, go for coffee? I think like you bring up a good point, like in university, it's so much easier to find a co-founder or find someone who's willing to work on an idea with you because it's, it's all students, right? And like, and these students, you're in university, like you can match take risks. It's not like you're, you sound like you have kids to worry about or, or really like, you know, you, you're relying on a paycheck from day to day. Like you, you can take all this risk. And so it's almost like, just go for it. Like I, I'm a big fan of just go for it, commit and just figure it out later. You know what I mean? Just start that idea. Just work on it. Meet the people, network. Exactly. Right. When you're in university, your risk is very low because your your cost of living is already quite low. You don't have any major assets. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You don't have a, you don't necessarily have a family. You probably don't have a house. You might be lucky if you have a car mm -hmm. uh, when you're in university, right? And so aside from your tuition bill and, and your rent and your food, what else do you really have, right? And you also have a good chunk of time. I know unless you're like an engineer yeah. or <laughs> full schedule in computer science where you yeah, jam exactly. from eight, to five every day, you usually have some spots in between um, your classes. And instead of playing video games or, you know, going drinking all the time, this is where you can spend some serious time and effort working on a business to give you that life that you want. Exactly. Yeah, man, I, I completely agree. Just, just go for it and take the risk. I want to, I want to, um, cause I know you have to go for a wedding after this and I just, I want to make sure that we, uh, I want, I want to hit this one last, one sure. last question. Yeah, okay. I know okay. this one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what's one piece of advice you'd give a founder just starting a startup? Yeah, I'm going to bring it all the way back to the beginning of our conversation where we talked about, or I talked about the difference between invention and business. So it is really easy to come up with ideas. Everyone has ideas. Some are great, some are not. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, they're ideas. And if you're just inventing a product, for example, I mean, go look on Shark's Tank and see all the products that people come up with. How many of them are really businesses versus um, just that one product? And if you think about the bias of, how, of who gets on a Shark Tank, for example, these are people that probably have traction already. So think about all the people who apply and never see the light of day with their, pro, uh, their product that they've worked so, so, so hard on and spent all their life savings on for it to go nowhere. The reason for that is they weren't critically identifying what problem they're trying to solve. And more importantly, they were not able to identify who is going to buy that solution, right? So knowing that you're solving a problem is one component of it. Making sure there's someone who will pay for that solution is another component. And I really think um, there's a FOMO that goes around that if I have this idea that if I don't work on it right now and get it to the end, that either someone else will have come up with it and, and commercialize it and made billions on it. Or, uh, you know, I, I will just have feel, felt like a failure to myself for not going through with it. That's not the case. Business takes time. There is no such thing as an instant success. No such thing. Look at all these major companies out here. 
they spent, you know, a decade building the infrastructure before they got to that hockey stick curve of growth, right? The, the projections that you see young entrepreneurs saying, okay, I'll start off with $1,000 today. And then by year one, I'll make $100 million. Like, no. It's like, no. Yeah, no, buddy. Like, I don't think that's how, mm-hmm. I don't think that's what's going to happen. No. Yeah. No, right? Exactly. And so take the time focus on the problem, focus on who your customer is, focus on the execution of that, and you'll probably find some success. It's not guaranteed, but certainly if you just roll with an idea and just push it forward, you will not succeed. There's just too much, too many variables there. And and, um, I, I really encourage people just to slow down and focus on that problem space first. Yeah, that was really well man uh, that that i wish someone told me that when i first started out uh as me a, too <laughs> I, I wish someone told me that that would have been so helpful oh <laughs> but yeah no I, I really love that i think there's lots of gold in, in in that in that two three sentences that you just shared right now i think that you have to have um patience i think that's that's a major one patience um, a lot of people want that instant success quick, like, okay, cool. I have a startup idea now and next year I'll be on Forbes. Like, no, you won't. It's like, you know, like, unless like some miracle happens, you're the first one in the world who does that. Like, I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think that you just have to learn to, to love the process. Um, and I wanted to end on, on that question, but I want to just ask this one uh, question for you. Cause for we sure. started on a personal note of what is self-love and I just want to end on a personal note and then, um, we can wrap it up. So I want, I want to, I want to ask you if you could go back, um, in time and give yourself a piece of advice, any, any time in life, uh, any period in, in your life for you, any, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Wow. That's so broad. <laughs> um, it can mean any domain, like it can be business wise. It can be even just personal. Like um, it, it, it's just whatever, I guess is like the first thing that comes to your head when you hear that. Cause maybe that's like the, the one that that's most prevalent, I guess. Yeah. 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 Um, I think now that I've gone through undergrad and I've gone through masters and unfortunately masters during the pandemic. Um, one thing that sticks out to me is the relationships you make during that time, right? So the friends you make, whether that's in your classes or it's in clubs and societies, how many people tell you like, and we've said it a couple of times in this show, go and join a club, go and join a society um, hang out with people, make those relationships, and it's going to be the best time of your life. You hear that all the time. And like, how many people actually go and do it? Because they're shy, they're worried about rejection yeah. or something. You know what? It doesn't matter, right? The most successful people I've seen through my university career have been those that are personable, that go out, that hang out with people, that show interest in other people's projects. So my advice is be that person, develop those relationships with other people. Um, go talk to the person standing alone in um, an event or gathering and just say, hi, it's scary. You know, um, a lot of people are shy. They're worried that you're going to like, what you're going to say hi. And they're going to be like, get away from me. They're at an event because they want to talk. They're at an exactly. event because they're interested in what, what's going on. And you never know when you talk to someone 
who they are, for example, what they can offer, what you can offer them in return, whatever it is, or just have a, a new friend, right? Exactly. Develop, develop these relationships because as you go through life, money will come and go, careers will come and go, and people will come and go. But the people aspect is so important to making an enjoyable life, right? And, and so really focus on that. I, I wish that my master's hadn't been during a pandemic, so I could have met more yeah. people. I wish that I had realized that there were, um, I, I could have had more friends during my undergrad, right? And it wasn't until my very last year where I started getting involved in the engineering clubs and more clubs and societies that I made some really, really good friends. It was the best time of my life at university. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people, go out, make that leap, go talk to people. The pandemic is effectively over right exactly go, go out to events go out to events go see people um and and just see where that takes you i completely agree and who knows like at these events you just might end up meeting your next co-founder of a startup you want to start exactly like, it's, it's insane alex thanks a lot man for coming on this podcast it was a pleasure having this conversation with you and i have no doubt that i'm going to have you back on sometime in the near future uh and hopefully we can talk about how um, what, how your startup's going, man. Like we can, we can talk about what it's like and, and really just dive into everything going on. All the exciting things that I really believe you're going to do. So I really appreciate you coming on here, man. And thanks so much for your time. No, thank you. I really appreciate it, Ali. I really, uh, really appreciated the invite. And yes, we'll, we'll connect when I hit that 1 million, 10 million, hundred million dollar mark. Let's right? do it. Just go 100%. From there. <laughs> Done. Excellent. Cheers, awesome. man. Appreciate Cheers. it.